I've sent in my application to the real world, so I'm hoping to hear back from that. I'm putting a lot of my eggs into that basket, you know, the MTV basket. I'm also thinking about getting a gun and dealing crack, being a crack dealer. Not like a mean crack dealer, but like, nice one. Like, kind of friendly, like, hey guys, what's up? Want some crack? Uh, hi, welcome along to another wonderful <laughs> episode of Have You Seen This? I'm Ben Hammond, and I'm very excited to be bringing you another packed episode. I'm, of course, joined by my incredible co-hosts, Mr. Benjamin Tiberius Mercer and Paul Xavier Breen. How the devil are you guys? Thank you so much for getting my middle name correct at last. Is that a Will Ferrell quote? It is a Will Ferrell quote. Tends to top the topic with a Will Ferrell quote each week. Yeah, well, it's unintentional. The first two episodes I did Will Ferrell quotes, and they're really funny, especially when they're out of context. <laughs> well, the jury's out on that. Hi, everyone. How's everyone doing? Very, very good. Not too bad, not too bad. Good. And our very special guest this week is David Smith. David, how are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. I've been lucky enough to actually interview David previously for another project I was working on. So it's great to have him on our pod. Looking forward to, to speaking to you again, sir. Thank you. So, end of episode two question, which seemed to have you a little bit stumped. So it is, which Disney princess is the only one so far to have had a baby? Chris Wilmot on the Facebook page got it absolutely correct. Do you guys have the answer? I didn't know the answer until I read Chris's message on the Facebook group, so I didn't know it. Ah, I see. I've not read Chris Wilmot's post. Can I have a stab at it? You absolutely can. Is it Ariel? Kiss the girl. <laughs> Was that your Sebastian impression? <laughs> I think that's racist. No, yeah, it's a little bit. Yeah. It's, a, it's a, yeah. a little bit racist. It's probably not acceptable now. Well, let's open that can of worms early on. All right, I'm just going to say, is it Ariel from The Little Mermaid? It is, of course, Ariel, the Little Mermaid, who had a child called Melody in The Little Mermaid 2 called Return to the Sea. And as another fairly obvious factoid, she is also the only Disney princess to have not been born human. A mermaid's not human, then? Well, they're like half semi-human, I suppose? Half human? Half human, okay. As another fairly obvious factoid, she's the only Disney princess <laughs> to have not been born full human. It's like Spock in Star Trek is half Vulcan, but they he's still like basically Vulcan. But is he a Disney princess? And has he had a baby? No, that's not well, well. I mean, maybe. <laughs> Live long. Under the sea. And prosper. On with the pod. Our regular show opener is our big picks from the small screen. And it's a little insight into what has been keeping us all entertained in the world of film and television outside of the very, very few cinemas that are still open. So we like to start off our guest. David, tell us what's been keeping you entertained over the last few very depressing weeks. So it's a TV show. Uh, I'd like to kind of uh, talk about it. I thought it was the finale, and I don't know if anyone's seen it, but it was The Boys. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if anyone's seen that Amazing. on yeah. Amazon Prime. Yeah, yeah. But the uh, the finale was kind of last week, and I thought that the final episode was absolutely amazing after quite a wonderful season as well. Um, a lot of hype from it from season one obviously season one was massive a long wait for season two and it certainly delivered throughout the whole season uh, and then we had a an amazing finale episode uh, which i absolutely loved and i got everything i wanted uh, and i can't wait for the next season yeah. yeah brilliant fantastic show the controversial image with uh homelander homelander thank you uh standing on the top of the building brilliant yeah looking after <laughs> yeah. himself <laughs> <laughs> looking after himself in silhouette which was just beautiful yeah i don't know the name of the actor but he is incredible 
He really is, isn't he? So obnoxious. Such just such a vile character. And I think it takes a real talent to sort of play someone like that, but you still you're invested in them. You're not so off put that you don't care what happens to them. Um it's great. Yeah. You get them actors where if you actually met them in real life, that you'd still just see them as homelander. You would just <laughs> yeah. want to punch them. Yeah. Even though they've done nothing. You'd be really disappointed when it turns out it's actually just kind of a cool guy. <laughs> great. Anything else outside of the boys? Borat two. I've watched recently. Amazing. Yes. Good. Close to the bone, but not as good as number one in terms of my opinion. I thought it was really good. Really kind of obviously massive political film. Uh, Sasha Baron Cohen making his kind of ideologies known. There was a deleted scene that I heard about, which I'm really annoyed wasn't in the film. And it was Sasha Baron Cohen as Borat being a porn star. Amazing. <laughs> and I really want to see that. I really want to see Borat as a porn star. And apparently he just caused havoc on set. And the director of the porno was just like, no, this isn't, this is not working. <laughs> that sounds, great. sounds brilliant. How are there still so many people in America that don't recognize him as Borat? Like how do people still get sucked into this and get tricked that's, by him? That's a part where I'm like, some of this must be, must be embellished some sort. Yeah. Must be. Especially when they interview people from the media and these, all these well-known famous people, how do they not know who he is? And I know they do that whole spiel mm. of him in the city and people do recognize him and they've, they've, they've covered it. Okay, people do recognise him, but yes, some yeah. people it's just like, hmm, where have you, where have you been? It was a while after the first Borat when they had to admit that actually it was kind of eighty percent scripted. Mm-hmm. But then when they said scripted, they said, oh well, there's there, there was a sixty page guidance document issued to yeah. the studio, and then the director only got to see five pages of that, and they tried. But I think it's more apparent in Borat too that there are a lot more staged mm-hmm. stunts than kind of more yeah. ad hoc mm-hmm. stuff. But still brilliant. Just just great. Mm. And a bit of a revival because I think when he went into Bruno and the dictator and stuff, he kind of it massively dipped for me, I think. Sasha Baron Cohen's stock kind of fell away. So great to see him back. And obviously he's one of our in one of our review films later on that we'll talk about. Great. Paul, Ben, what about you guys? So over the last few weeks I went to a uh, kinema cinema. A cin cinem, cinema. No way. They still exist, they're still out there. I went to the gorgeous... Now, we don't often do shout-outs on this podcast for cinemas, but I'm going to shout this one out because it was wonderful. The Abigate Cinema in Barry St. Edmunds. We went there to watch Sofia Coppola's new film, On the Rocks, with Bill Murray and Rashida Jones. Mm -hmm. This is pure whimsy. The film is just unabashed, peak whimsy, and that's all I can really say about it. But for what it's worth, I really loved it. Bill Murray was hilariously funny. Uh, I really hope Bill Murray doesn't turn out to be a bad egg because that would really crush me. Him and Tom Tom Hanks are sort of up there in the zeitgeist of people who just, I, I want to know, I want them a part of my life. I want them to even be like related to them, like a dad or a granddad. And if, if I find out that Bill Murray is like a shit, <laughs> that's really going to upset me. Because in this film, he does play a bit of a sex predator, but he does it in such an affable way that we root for him. So it's really good. And it's on Apple Plus now. So if you want to watch that at home, I fully recommend that if you like Sophia Coppola's um, other works. Not as good as Lost in Translation, but it, it's great it, it, it's it's nice it's lovely i rewatched the planet of the apes trilogy uh, the recent one starting in 2011's rise then 2014's dawn and then 2017's war of the planet of the apes i've always thought that war should have been called dawn and dawn should have been called war but that's by the by the first one robert white's one is not particularly i mean it's good it, it, it sets it up it kind of convinced you that there's a need for a prequel universe set before the original planet of the Apes films that's great but 
some of the, the steps in it are just very by the numbers. You've got a villainous, morally ambiguous, like chemical factory owner who's cutting all the corners and they essentially destroy the entire world. But by the time you get to Matt Reeves taking over, who's obviously doing the new Batman film, and he takes over with 2014's Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. And I don't know why more people aren't talking about these films. They're so good. Andy Serkis is incredible. The motion capture work on the uh, Central Apes Caesar is it just the opening shot of Dawn is basically just fully engulfed by Andy Serkis's uh, CGI ape face. And it, but it just looks dead on for an actual ape. And by the time you get to 2017's War, like the effects are absolutely incredible. Um, so yeah, I don't know why we aren't talking about these films now anymore because they're really good. <laughs> um, yeah, really great trilogy of films. So yeah, really enjoyed those. The final shot in the final film that just made me cry. Yeah, yeah, it's heartbreaking. Nice. Yeah, I've had a bit. Of, I've watched a lot again. I've had a lot of time on my hands. I've rewatched Game Night, a film that so good. we've spoken about on previous series, and it just stands up to multiple rewatches because it's just so funny. Really? There's bits that you just haven't. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's much better than you give it credit for. Paul, sorry, it's. Have you, a, have you had a sense of humour transplant or something? What's going on? It's it's really funny. Mm. And Rachel McAdams has. I mean, she's got some serious comedic chops. Like she's so so funny in this film. There's just just great little bits that I really enjoy, and the stuff that I I probably laughed at as a first watch, but now I've got a bit more time on my hands, and things are a little bit dull. Like even the scene where the bad guy stood under the uh, the baggage handling belt, <laughs> and she presses go on the belt, and it moves like almost you know it almost reminds me of almost like Naked Gun esque hot shots kind of humour. But I just it's brilliant. The one take action set piece in the middle of the film is amazing with a Fabergé egg. Mm. It is brilliant, and some of that camera work where it's tracking the egg where they're tossing each other to each other like an American football is just brilliant. And when they break it open, there's a made in China sticker, and the guy comments like, "Maybe just the sticker was made in China." Like, I think, <laughs> Come on, Paul, watch it again and talk talk to us about it in a couple of weeks' time. Really? I mean, I enjoyed it the first time round, but I don't know if I'd watch it again. It definitely stands up to a rewatch. I watched the South Park pandemic special again because I think Trey Parker and Matt Stone are just bringing some some hideous light into the world. The you know the hashtag cancel South Park is trending quite quite rapidly. And I like that these guys are just sticking two things up to the world and saying, well, do you know what? There is political correctness and there's what we've been doing for the last 24 years and you're just going to have to deal with it. Yeah. Borat, subsequent movie film we've spoken about. Now, talking about disappointing rewatches, I rewatched A Quiet Place. Now, I really, really enjoyed A Quiet Place on a first watch. Really, really enjoyed it. Now, I only watched it for the second time this week and it does not stand up really? to a rewatch oh, wow. at all. Once, once you understand the creatures and... The, the families and what they have to do to survive. None of the movie makes sense because he, he takes his son to the waterfall and they scream at the top of their lungs. It's like, well, as long as your surroundings are noisier than the noise you're making, you're fine. It's like, so why don't you just live next to the fucking waterfall? <laughs> why don't they live in the middle of a very, very quiet farm where they can't speak, but they can go and live next to the fucking rapids and have as much noise as they can have a party every night. And the, like, there's stuff like this that just begins to make very little sense. And the creature goes down into the basement and reacts to the ticking of an egg timer. Like, starts going crazy, but it doesn't hear her walking, breathing, and cocking the shotgun, getting ready to shoot it. It it all starts to become quite unraveled for me on a second watch, I'm afraid. So, yeah, it lost a star for me. I originally rated it as a four-star movie. It's now dropped to a three-star movie because it just, it doesn't stand up to rewatch, I'm afraid. What's that going to say for the sequel? Well, exactly. I do like the way that the end of the first sets up the sequel, you know, they've shot the creature with a shotgun and they see in the cameras the other creatures coming through the cornfield but again the creatures sometimes they're clumsy sometimes they're ruthlessly efficient i just don't really it, it doesn't make sense to me anymore i had an accidental simon Pegg double bill so i watched 2014's kill me three times have you seen this where simon Pegg's an assassin no it's funny it tickled me it's, it's well worth a watch it's on net 
Netflix, I think, or Prime, one of the other at the moment. Yeah, Kill Me Three Times. And then 2020's Inheritance. Yeah, I watched that. I watched that this week, yeah. So if you haven't seen it, essentially it's a family who, the, the father of the family is very rich and he passes away and he leaves his estate to the family. And the daughter is pointed out to a bunker in the garden. And when she goes down into the bunker, she discovers Simon Pegg, who's you know, been down there for 30 years, chained around the neck, can't move, can't go anywhere. So she has essentially inherited Simon Pegg as a prisoner, as part of her father's estate. Um, and the story starts to unravel from there. It's genuinely very good. Um, it kind of kept me entertained for a long time. And I do like the, the twist towards the end, which is, mm. which is very good. Yeah. Simon Pegg's great in it as a proper straight role. It's fantastic in it. I've never heard of either of these films. Me neither. They're good. They're, they're fairly short, fairly punchy. I think they're like an hour and 40 odd minutes each. Um, and just, just worth a bit of bit of time, actually. Simon Pegg seems to have almost signed the same Netflix deal as Adam Sandler. <laughs> because when you turn on Netflix, all you see now is uh, Simon Pegg movies. But his films are a little better. I would say a lot better, in fact. Yeah, and then a film we're going to come to talk about uh, later on, because it's now on Amazon Prime. I had a rewatch of Bear this week, which is... Yeah. Equally as nice. equally as entertaining uh, as the first time I saw it. Feel free to slag off. <laughs> no, no, absolutely, no, absolutely no need to. And still, the scene where you walk out of the pub and smash the beer out of the guy's hand still has me on the floor. I think it's just brilliant. <laughs> it's a nice little slice of comedy in that film. So, yeah, timing's perfect. Your reaction is perfect. I still that that one scene. I still mm-hmm. I still really enjoy it. And that's that's been my watching week. So mm. over to you, Breen. Unsurprisingly, I've got a list. Obviously, we just talked about inheritance. So I've watched that because that uh, that went live last week. And that's, again, really enjoyed that. Uh, rewatched Reservoir Dogs. Nice, love that film. Uh, it's still for me. Sorry, Hammond. I prefer it to Pulp Fiction. What? It's. I think it's. I think it's an incredible film. I think it's an absolutely superb film as a debut movie. It's stunning i watched a korean zombie film called hashtag alive went live a couple of weeks ago so it's not not for you mercer it's not for you. Um, <laughs> that's a shame because i put hashtags in front of everything so i would have thought i'd like that <laughs> it's 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 okay it's a bit by the numbers but it's it's, it's a korean zombie film what's not to like so i watched that on prime i watched a documentary called misery loves comedy which is, is supposed to be a, a conversation with you know comedy comes from misery basically and, and delving into that but they t- it tends to not really be about that at all it's just a conversation people having a having a laugh and a chat and uh, about comedy it's actually very very good what else did i watch i watched underwater on sky with kristen stewart the film she did last year i think it's all right it gets really generic towards the end it's sort of almost like a cross between the abyss and alien i watched ready or not which was out 18 months ago about a woman who marries this guy who has got a very rich family, the ceremony is at their house, but the, the ritual they have uh, after the ceremony is that they have to play a game, and the game ends up being hide-and-seek, but it becomes a very violent hide-and-seek. It, it's okay. It's not fantastic. Really? I, I heard that film was great. The Empire guys are really raving about it. It's fine, but I, I think it needed... It wasn't quite in one camp or another. I think it needed to have its tongue sort of firmly stuck in its cheek. Right. To really, to really pull it off, because it sort of half-heartedly did that, and then tried to be serious at other points. And it, I mean, it's a perfectly serviceable film. It's definitely worth a look, but I didn't think it was, you know, fantastic because it did couldn't really decide whether it wanted to be serious or, you know, fully sort of tongue in cheek. And then I've been watching Shit's Creek, the Eugene Levy and Dan Levy TV show that's on Netflix. Won all the Emmys this year after the final season. I started watching that. I've watched the first three seasons now. It's fantastic. You know, Catherine O'Hara is in it as well, who is wonderful. So definitely recommend that. Give that a go. This very rich family have everything taken away for them, realizing the only thing they have left at one point in years gone by, they bought a small town 
called Shit's Creek. Hmm. So they end up having to go to live there. They sort of get involved with the locals. It's it's a great show. Eugene Levy is always worth watching. Daniel Levy, his son, is great, who co-wrote it with, and he's fantastic. In fact, the, the whole cast are, are wonderful. Definitely recommend that. So yeah, that's my extensive list, which I'm sure will be edited down. Yeah, I didn't realise that we were rattling off like tw- all the 20 films that we watched uh, this week. So I'd like to chime in with another, if that's all right. Of course. Yeah, go for it. That was a, a rewatch of Parasite. Nice. Uh, which amazing. is an absolutely phenomenal film. Uh, that would forever be an experience that for the first time I watched that film. And kind of trying to categorise that film as a genre, I think is impossible. The first half an hour is one genre. The next half an hour turns into another genre and so on and so on. Performances are fantastic throughout. The structure of the actual script and how it plays out is fantastic. And obviously it did very well at the awards as well. Uh, and I just love that story. And now it's free on Prime. Mm-hmm. So actually nobody's got an excuse not to watch mm-hmm. it because they've, they've removed the, the pay to view now. So yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely get Parasite watched if you can. No, let's go again. He does not get it. On to our next feature, presented by Mercer, as he picks through the tatters and ruins <laughs> of the UK box office. It's just peanuts on the floor. Yes. Um, yeah. Going through the aisles of the cinemas that are open and just sort of coming together all the popcorn crumbs. And that's basically what these films are making at the moment. Well, the top five is dominated this week by half term. It's half term at the moment. So we've got two by two overboard at number one. That made 329k. Uh, it's like an animated film based on Noah's Ark, I think, from what I could see. I mean, all I saw was an image. I clicked on the name. I saw an image. and I was like, yeah, Noah's Ark. So I assume that's what it's about. And number two, we've got Liam Neeson's new I'm an old middle-aged action star, Honest Thief, which has got 254K in the UK uh, this weekend, just gone. Right, it's meant to be quite good. Uh, the Secret Garden's finally been released. Uh, I think you can get it on streaming as well as in the cinemas, and that's on 154K now. And then Tenant is at number four, so Tenant has now slipped down to number four. No, it was number one last time we did this. But yeah, that's definitely on its way out. That's 134K. It's a 17 mil now in the UK. I, I don't think it is going to reach the 20 million that they were saying that it would reach, which in Stella made in 2014. At the end of the list, we've got Pixie, which is the new sort of Irish set comedy drama guy ritchie-esque thing so guys i've got a question for you we know that james bond has a license to kill but does he have a license to stream i hope not seems to have a license to kill cinema let's just hope somewhere at universal mgm they have a soul rather than just cashing in on the franchise surely it's too big a franchise to cash in on now if they sell the rights to bond now yeah then you know it's still got legs we we still know there's more bond in the pipeline so sell the franchise now it's it's it would be the most short-sighted move in the history of cinema, apart from Disney and their shenanigans. Surely it's not worth it. You have a product that has longevity, that has lots and lots of money left in it. Why would you sell it now and allow it to stream? I just don't understand that. Well, let's look at MGM's point of view. So at the moment, and I read an article yesterday in The Hollywood Reporter, it's costing MGM $1 million in interest a month to keep this film on the shelf due to the various streams of revenue they had to borrow just to make the film in the first place. So they're paying a hefty amount of interest on this. They're also right. a, a company that isn't making a lot of money anyway. It doesn't have a large amount of um, franchises to rely on. And then, of course, everything that they have, they were going to release, has been delayed due to the pandemic. So I think they were just looking for a way to very quickly offset their costs. Nobody really made a serious bid. Apparently, Apple were the only people bidding. They bid $400 million for it, um, but MGM were after somewhere in the region of 600 to $800 million for one film. I mean, I know steel box sets are expensive, especially the 4K ones, but 
800 million. There, there will be one way that they could generate some revenue for it in, a, in an immediate fashion. Do you know what <laughs> that is? <laughs> they could have bought it out <laughs> in the cinema. Yes, but I, yeah, but no, they, could have, they could have. But it, would it have made 800 million during a, a pandemic? It would have helped offset all this money they're paying in interest every month at the very least. Well, yeah. yeah, I think ultimately they couldn't do it because Barbara Broccoli, God bless her, she was the one who wasn't even a part of these conversations. And when she found out, she was like, that is absolutely not happening. She's a traditionist and she wants to see it in the cinema. So I think we all have her to thank that this ultimately just didn't happen. I think so. I think so. And if, you know, if MGM are short of a few quid, they've pretty much reopened 95% of their Vegas properties. So, you know, they can, they can dip into that well if they want. You know, MGM. And is it the same company? Uh, yeah. MGM owns. 50% of the Las yeah. Vegas Strip. Amazing. Wow. Anyone up for buying a cinema chain right now? Do you fancy buying Cineworld or AMC? Um, uh, <laughs> I, I tell you what, Warners, Universal and Netflix have ruled themselves out. They do not want to buy a movie a movie chain right now. Of course they do, because they're trying to kill it. That's why. But do you not think that Netflix want the prestige of... I mean, their whole thing has been they need to release films in the cinemas in order to get things like Roma into the Oscar contention. I mean, for them, it would be pebbles. Uh, what's the trading price for Cineworld at the moment? They could buy the entire chain for, what, 300 mil? How, and how much is Netflix worth at the moment? 2 point what billion? Well, I, uh, yeah, why, why, why wouldn't they do it? But because they don't need to. <laughs> Quite frankly, you know, they've built a billion dollar empire from, I mean, what was it back in the day? You used to, used to order DVDs online and mm. wait a couple of days from to go through your letterbox to now one of the largest grossing empires on the planet. It's, you know, they, they don't need to, they don't need real estate. They don't need property. David, you've just put bear on Amazon Prime. Was there ever a conversation about potentially getting that released in theaters? And do you think actually with the advent of, of streaming, is that an easier model than sort of getting your film out on the theatres? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the in terms of opportunity, um, streaming was always going to be the the most opportune um, way that Bear was going to go. Um, it, I would have absolutely loved to have had Bear in theatres. In fact, we obviously had the premiere at our, at our local Cineworld. And it was, I'll always remember that day. It was our film, my film in the cinema on the big screen where it's meant to be seen and it felt good, it felt right and the theatre was packed um, and Paul can, can can tell you what the atmosphere was like as well. It was really amazing. It was kind of up there as, as one of the most, one of the best experiences I've had in the theatre. That wouldn't yeah. be the same. Yes, I still get a kick out of you know people I don't know, other people at home just watching it on their, their own streaming service you know, on a Saturday night, just sitting down and watching our film. Yes, that's yeah. a lovely, lovely thought. But just being in that theatre with everybody and watching it together was was so wholesome. Very proud moment for, for all of us. Yeah. But mm. getting a distribution deal. So obviously we took the film on the festival run. It got into three festivals overall. Um, but there's going to be no distribution deal. Yeah. We kind of for a film this small that was made for £7,000. There was never going to be a, a kind of a good, theatrical distribution run uh, and i was aware of that when we started making it so mm. streaming was really the, the only way that it was going to go um and obviously amazon prime they have amazon prime direct it is still an absolute bull lake to get your film on there <laughs> um a lot of niggly things and legal stuff and when there's money involved and uh, the worst thing was making the subtitles i had yeah. to make subtitles for the entire film oh wow Took me two oh, days. Well. But yeah, streaming was the size of this film. It was really the only way it was going to go. But I still have that memory, that moment of it being shown in the theatre and nothing can take that away from us. 
throughout all these conversations about streaming services taking over and, and things like that, I think, David, you've absolutely smashed it. Filmmakers want their films on the big screen mm. and the audiences demand it, regardless of how good your home cinema entertainment system is. Mm. And I look at Borat too, because I remember watching the first Borat in the cinema uh, and my, my face hurt when I came out of that film because a lot of that was generated by the people I was sitting with. It generates the atmosphere and the ambience. And I think I genuinely would have found Borat 2 a lot funnier had I been in an auditorium watching on the big screen with like-minded people all laughing and picking out different gags and things like that. So I have absolute faith in that the industry will bounce back at some point in the next couple of years. And I've got faith in the people like David who are making films specifically for the big screen, not just for... I'm going to chuck this out on Netflix and, and enjoy it on your, on your plasma screen at home. It's now time that we turn our attention onto our guest and put the spotlight on David. Okay, so David is a writer, director, editor and cinematographer. After years of making films since he was very, very young and spending six plus years in the film and TV industry fulfilling a variety of different roles on the set, David released his first feature, Bear, in 2019, uh, which is now streaming on Amazon Prime. And his recent short, Blue, won him the Best International Director at the 2020 Austin Micro Short Film Festival. So David, you've had a varied career in filmmaking so far. What got you into the industry and are there any sort of particular films that sort of inspired you to create your own work? I've actually been very lucky in terms of knowing what I want to do with my life since a, a very young age, you know, six or seven, I picked up my first camera and just started messing with it and doing little plays with my, my friend and stuff. In terms of films that really made me want to do this, I've got a really vivid memory of in 1993 or 1994 Jurassic Park when I was three years old and just remembering that scene with the velociraptors in the kitchen that's my earliest memory of of film my earliest memory of cinema I don't know what my parents were doing let me watch that at three years old because it is terrifying (laughs) Um, but that scene just always sticks in my my head as the power of cinema and how this can change someone's emotions and take you to a different place. And I really thought just from that moment, that's kind of what I want to do. And then it just, just grew from there. Another massive film in my childhood really that kind of made me want to do this was three amigos. Amazing. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. It's it's an amazing film. Absolutely amazing. It's it's up there. It's in my top 10 uh, favorite films uh, of all time. Then I, I started when I was kind of, Technically, when I was about seven years old, making my own film, just on a webcam, DV cams, just making lots of silly short films, just learning my craft, Mm. really, learning how the camera works, camera shots. Then I went to study at college, studied moving image. Then I went to university to study film production. And I dropped out my first year uh, at the end of my first year to go into my first job uh, within the industry, which was the terrible, the atrocious 2010 robin hood oh god (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah it was my first job on a film so yeah it was an amazing experience i kind of felt at home instantly i was like this on a film set is where i where i need to be yeah and then from there it just kind of spitballed it's interesting that your first two sort of cool points inspiring your like for film were Jurassic Park and The Three Amigos, like a comedy and an action film. Because when it comes to Bear, mm-hmm. that's a very gritty, very dark, almost sort of Scandinavian detective mm-hmm. story. Just give us a brief synopsis of that film and, and what it's about. Bear follows Detective Charles Mayer and he has a traumatic experience, which ultimately leads him to having some time off work. And he returns to work 
almost instantly as the film begins. And it's kind of us following him back into his routine, kind of has no time to ease himself back in as a dismembered arm is found in a local lake. And obviously the task is given to Charles to to solve this. As well as this, he's trying to rekindle the relationship he has neglected with his eight-year-old daughter. So there's kind of some personal issues going on there, as well as obviously is trying to solve this case. And it really came about in terms of, I was, how old was I at the time? I was 26. And if you would have told eight, 12-year-old me that I'd still not made a feature film by the time I was 26, he would have kicked you and said, no, I would have made, I would have, I would have made 20 by then. <laughs> so it was kind of a, a dream of mine to make a feature film. I've, all I've done is make short, but I've always wanted to make a feature film. And I said, by my 28th birthday, I will have a, my own feature film. We would have made a, a feature film. Paul, come on board then, and not only as the, the actor, but as a producer, which really helped me in terms of, because that was, I wrote one scene of the film when I spoke to Paul about it. And then as soon as he said, yep, yeah, let's do it, I mm. could then write with him in mind as the main character. Um, bear in yeah. mind, I'd never seen Paul act. I'd never seen Paul act. Um, <laughs> Huge but, was, but you guys know Paul, you, you bet, and you can hear it in his voice. He's got a presence, very much a traditional actor from the stage. Um, and that was really helpful mm. to write the script to. But yeah, so we kind of decided this is going to be two, three years of our lives. We knew it was going to be that. So we wanted to do something we're passionate about. Crime thrillers, kind of my, my favorite genre. Um, so that's why we decided to go that that route. Nice. Bear was completely self-funded, but seeing the film on Amazon Prime, it's very cinematic in its scope. It's well lit. It's got this gorgeous sort of opening shots. It looks fantastic. Um, for something that was self-funded, it's absolutely amazing. Thank you. Can you maybe just talk a bit about how you managed to get mm-hmm. the funds together? If there's any sort of aspiring filmmakers listening now, how how was it that sort of the project got off the ground? Yep. So we didn't block shoot at all. Um, it was obviously everyone's got day jobs. We need to work around different actors, getting everyone together. So it really was, I think we shot over two years, um, two and a half years. We went down the crowdfunding route. We used Indiegogo and that was successfully raised to mm-hmm. over £2,600, which is really good. And then the rest of it was our own money. So my own money, Paul put some money in and so on and so on. But yeah, it was down to the kind of generosity of friends, family, people we know, a lot of people we didn't know who who seen the, the crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo. And yeah, obviously the costs spread over three years two and a half years so it doesn't sound much mm. when you, you say seven thousand and it as i said it definitely looks like it costs a lot more which is you know a credit to that process we lucked out on certain things as well so for example the score for the film by an amazing composer called harrison king i think he did an exceptional job and it, it again in terms of production value he gave it a, a, another level as well that's another moment that will stay with me when i first showed Paul, the soundtrack, Harrison sent it to me, had on my phone. Me and Paul were driving up to London and we hooked up to his car and then I played the entire soundtrack for him, kind of talking him through visually. This this happens here, listen to this bit. And that was I think Paul started crying. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Apparently apparently he does that a lot, so it doesn't seem that special now. <laughs> it was sheer luck we got that composer because I was making the trailer and I, I was on YouTube searching, you know, music just to get inspired by and use. And I come across Harrison's channel. And this song fit perfectly. So I messaged him saying, oh, can I use this for my film trailer? He goes, definitely not. You are not using this. This is, you need to pay for this. This has got rights. It's copyrighted. And I was like, oh, okay, brilliant. And then I was a bit cheeky. I, I, I sent him the actual trailer with his music over the top and said, okay, I'm not allowed to use this track, but have you got anything similar I could use? And then he, he messages me back and goes, can I score the actual trailer? Can I score the whole film? So 
yeah, it's kind of a happy, happy accident. But yeah, that's amazing. So your current project at the moment is Blue, which is a micro short film about a fisherman on the coast. Can you just talk a bit about that and how that came together? Yeah, so that was more or less made as a test shoot for our next project. So next project is going to be a short film, currently writing it at the moment. And it follows a kind of seasoned fisherman and his 18-year-old son and the struggles of trying to make a living through the small seaside um, fishing town. And uh, obviously, there are, they have personal issues going on as well. But it's really a, a wholesome film, again, about a father, father and son, their relationship and how it gets tested, really, through these, these, these trying times. And that came about, really, through, again, me, myself and Paul, we sat down and go, you know, what's next? I need to be doing something. I need to be doing something creative. I can't just sit down. I need to be, need to be creative. If it is writing, uh, writing a script, I need to be doing something. And it all came about. Uh, we went for a, a coffee, a, a cafe. And I love going to a coffee shop, bringing my iPad, my laptop, and just people watching and writing. I, I absolutely love it. Uh, and w- what we just started spitballing ideas. And, and I come up with this idea um, about. Um, relationships with your father and loss uh, and and yeah i don't want to say too much because i don't want to give anything away but it's, it's got a lot of heart into it um and hopefully well i'd love to film that next year um and it'll be finished by the end of next year we like to hear from our guests about their guilty pleasures so a film that you like that perhaps you really shouldn't so i'm a sucker for musicals um and uh, is it a guilty pleasure? I I love High School Musical. Oh, one of I the greatest love, films ever made. <laughs> I love one High School Musical one, two, and three. I love them all, and obviously they get they get slated. David, I'm out. <laughs> Thank you. Thank God. Thank you. Uh, Breen, if you are trying to besmirch the work of Sir Zac Efron, then you can leave the podcast right now. Yeah, I'm sorry, mate. You can jog on because High School yeah. Musical is great. <laughs> I think I think I've done that before. Sorry, David. I interrupted. No, no, not at all. But. I just love musicals. I just got a really soft spot for them. Um, my favourite being probably Moulin Rouge, which is a fantastic film. But yeah, a kind of high school musical, I would say, was my, my biggest guilty pleasure. Yeah, I mean, it definitely ticks the box of a guilty pleasure. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm right mm-hmm. I'm right in that with you because I love it. Yeah. <laughs> We're all in this together, right? We're all in this together. You've got to get, got to get your head in the game. <laughs> Breen, have you seen High School Musical? Is that totally wasted on you? It's totally wasted on me. Uh, I love a musical. You haven't lived, man. I love a musical. Don't get me wrong. Um, Singing in the Rain is my favourite screen musical. But High School Musical, not for me. Listen, Mm -hmm. High School Musical followed by 17 again. Get yourself a real good Zac Efron (laughs) pick. to entertainment you can't beat a good film i had to i had to double take the notes actually for for the next section so it's the two films in review uh, and i couldn't actually believe they were picked by brain <laughs> oh come on <laughs> fuck you hammond <laughs> uh so brain what were your picks and tell us your thoughts uh so my two picks were the personal history of david copperfield which uh, is on prime amazon prime and then the trial of the chicago seven which is on netflix so let's start with David Copperfield. My boyhood days seem now like a scarcely believable fiction. London is full of wonders and wickedness. And it's ours, David, to go wherever we choose. Well, I'm not down there. Creditors make that road impossible. I'm Andy Inucci, directed, obviously, 
very much known for his political satire and that's really fundamentally been his entire career up to up to this point so i wasn't sure what to expect going in with this adaptation of the charles dickens story of almost like a rags to riches a story of david copperfield and it was it was wonderful i absolutely loved it it's so light because charles dickens adaptations can be really sort of heavy and or you have to plow through them but there was such a light, deft touch from Amanda Iannucci uh, in this, because I think he also co-wrote the screenplay. I, I thought it was wonderful. And it was such a different uh, view of, of his work, because it was, it was, it was, there was no political angle to it at all. Yes, because it was just, in terms of casting, it was, you know, it was non-specific in terms of, you know, it wasn't traditional in its casting. But that didn't matter. It was whatever was best for the story. And I thought it was a fantastic uh, performance. I really enjoyed I thought Tilda Swinton was wonderful. She, she has such a deft, light touch with, with comedy. I don't know what it is, but I find really engaging about her. I think she, she's wonderful. And Ben Whishaw was uh, fantastic. I didn't recognise him at the beginning. Um, it took me a little while to sort of realise who it was. Why I'd be so bold, Master Copperfield, as to ask you to come to tea with me and mother. What a shame. I, I fear I have a prior engagement on that date. On which date? I don't believe I mentioned a date. And thought his, the, the, the character, the way he came in, there was so much energy uh, in that character at the beginning, even for the type of character he was. And then, obviously, the, the changes that that story moves through, I thought he was, was wonderful. But the entire cast were fantastic. It looked great uh, on the screen. It was a very light, sort of quite a vibrant colour palette. Uh, through, throughout the film, which you don't necessarily expect from Charles Dickens stories. But again, I think that's Iannucci doing some wonderful things and just really bringing that story to life. I thought it was wonderful. How about you guys? For me, this was just so much fun. Um, from from the opening scene right away, even, even the, the scenes of kind of peril where, I forget the character's name, where the, the kind of the evil guy who's been kissing his ass all the way through the movie turns into a shit. You're, and you just... And wish all. Oh, man. But even that is done with such humour. I've always been a big fan of Armando Iannucci. I loved Alan Partridge. Um, I loved the thick of it. Um, I don't think there was one bad performance no. from anybody in this film. I mean, Dev yeah, Patel yeah. was so, so good. so good. But it's tricky calling everybody else a supporting cast because it's almost like everybody had a lead role and delivered it so beautifully. I could be wrong, um, and, I'm, and our foremost expert, Mr. Mercer, can correct me here, but I found some scenes a little Wes Anderson-esque in terms of the colours being used Definitely. and the scenery. Um, oh, totally. The upside, the upside down boathouse in particular. Yeah. Um, but there was also a dinner scene where, behind one character, it was kind of a pastel pink with gold frames, and then behind the other character was kind of a dark green. Mm. Um, and whilst whilst I've still got a lot more Anderson Anderson viewing to do, a lot of the kind of color palette and the way that this was shot, the cinematography reminded me a lot of some of the the Wes Anderson stuff I've seen. I thought the comedy was delivered brilliantly the timing the the lines i thought it was just great it's just just a really fun watch from start to finish yeah i mean you're absolutely right paul he spent the his most of his career in tv and with his films the thick of it and the death of stalin being very very political and with that comes a stylistic choice of doing handheld cameras in rooms sort of like the office comedies of the time and it's not really got much visual flair. But what I love about this is like, essentially it's a testament to two creative forces coming to their own, Dave Patel and Anucci. And with Anucci, it's the 
interpretation of Dickens versus other interpretations, the juxtaposition of some very modern filmmaking techniques in the period aesthetic, which just makes everything feel so just so epic in its scope whether or not it's like a, a carriage whisking through a living room to illustrate the fact that Copperfield is being taken to London to the factory to work or whether it's the the Pegatis uh, chasing after a uh, steel forth and the room just gives way to this windswept cliff as he rides away on a horse these touches are so visually lush and it helps sell this emotional resonance in something that's advertised as a comedy and it is very very funny but it just packs such an emotional punch Due to those sort of techniques that, yes, you're right, Hammond, are a bit Anderson, but also sort of Paul King, the director of, of the Paddington movies and uh, the Mighty Boosh. It has that sense of playing with stage, um, but on the screen and like pulling away walls, having characters be up here in the middle of the field. All that stuff was just wonderful. And Dev Patel, who's someone I've never really rated, first appearing on the scene uh, in Skins in 2007 as a sweaty, girl-obsessed teenager, and even in Slumdog Millionaire, I always thought there was a sort of smirk he, he was given to the camera as if he was going to start some sort of like mad phone party soundtrack by the folds <laughs> or whatever it was teenagers were doing in 2007. Like I didn't buy into him, but in this, he carries the weight of this film and he does it with such elegance. He's absolutely incredible. He's such a great talent. He's really coming to his own. And so is Zanucci in this film. And I actually, I actually started crying. Like it was so moving, oh, so funny, wow. so wonderful. Um, yeah. Brilliant film. Loved it. David, what did you think? Um, I feel like the other one out here. Um, oh, no. it's, always, it's always it's always good to have a bit, a bit of contrast um i can only echo what you said ben uh, in terms of some of the transitions they had the set pieces in there were was, were amazing in terms of how they pulled them off um i myself also wasn't a big fan of deb patel um not really into i seen lion um mm. that was a fantastic film and his performance in that was really kind of drew me into him being a serious actor in, in quotes did i enjoy it yes i did um did it blow me away? It did not. But I think that's fair to say. Yes, the performances were, the, the cast in that film is insane. Um, I think kind of my standout would be, would be Hugh Laurie as my favourite. But yeah, there was, I don't think there was a bad performance in there. I didn't know before watching this um, who the director was um, until I looked it up after, afterwards on IMDb. And I could tell there was just something about this film that was, it, it felt like a, like, a, and this is, this is, um, not a negative. It felt like a TV movie. Felt like it was made for TV. Can certainly see now um, the director and, and his past work why that does look like that. But technically, visually stunning. Did it fill me with emotion? And did I get invested in every single character? No. Do you know this is going to sound bad? It felt like a pantomime to me in some in some regards. Um, in terms of that 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 satire. Yes, I enjoyed it. Yes, it was a good yarn. Um, is it going to be one that I remember f- for years and years? Probably not. <laughs> not not a raging success story. It's a very very yeah. British centric film. Mm. Um, I can totally understand that. But... Great. So then, on to your second pick, then, Bring. We're going to Chicago to protest the Vietnam War. There's no place to be right now, but in it. We watched for a decade while these rebels without a job tell us how to prosecute a war. They're going to spend their 30s in a federal facility, real time. So the uh, second choice was The Trial of the Chicago 7, which I said was on Netflix, uh, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. Uh, It tells the story of seven people that were being put on trial for various charges from what was supposed to have been a peaceful protest against the Vietnam War. I absolutely loved this film i'm a big fan of aaron sorkin 
for a start, right back from the West Wing. I think as a as a writer, I think he's exceptional, and I think he had a it was really deft touch in the direction of this film. I think he really gave each of the characters a proper voice. I know that obviously they're real people, but he he was able to draw brilliant performances. And we've talked about Sasha Baron Cohen. I thought he his performance was well, well all the performances were were wonderful. Um and he Sasha Baron Cohen he, he, I think was a really well rounded performance. There wasn't any to steal the, the word you used, uh, David Pantomime in, in his performance at mm-hmm. all. I think uh, you know he avoided caricature, which obviously is what he's renowned for really, um and created a fully rounded human being. Mm-hmm. Even though obviously I knew the outcome of this trial, the subsequent story of what, what, what happened to these people, I still felt really tense. And it, it made me, again, it's another one of those things about the, we, we, we've, in our previous iteration podcast, we, we talked about the American justice system a lot and how angry it makes us. And this did nothing to dispel that, obviously. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it made me genuinely angry and anxious for them, even though I knew what the outcome was going to be. Mm. What can sometimes be, certainly with courtroom dramas, these things are being shot, they can become quite dull and generic. But I, again, I think Aaron Sorkin did a brilliant job making it really interesting. Performances across the board were fantastic. I, I, I absolutely loved this film. Um, how, how did you guys feel about it? I think you're right. The key to a good courtroom drama is to make it interesting because you've got a static environment. Mm. So you're reliant on the script, you're reliant on the characters, and you're reliant on kind of keeping the pacing alive <laughs> in one location. And we'll talk about this later on when we talk about our favourite courtroom scenes in other films. But this does such a great job of doing it. The pace never relents. And the flashbacks to the situation which ultimately led them into prison. And the way they handled that was fantastic. Some of the elements are a bit Sorkin-esque, uh, Sorkin doing Sorkin in a Sorkin way. Some of the, the overcomplicated uh, flourishes of narration or, or uh, use of the thesaurus here is, is sort of crowbarred into scenes that made it feel a bit less natural. I mean, case in point, Ruben, as he's entering the uh, courtroom for the first time, played by Jeremy Strong, there's an egg that's thrown in him. He catches the egg. It was until I saw that. Most of them were on our side. Jesus Christ, how did you do that? Experience. You don't know what to do with the egg now, do you? No. I think Sorkin only did that so Sasha Baron Cohen could turn to him and say, you have no idea what to do with that egg now. It's like, I don't. Mm-hmm. I've looked it up. Um, that didn't actually happen in real life. That was something that was added, um, added by Sorkin. But apart from that, yeah, it's a fantastic film. And again, it just makes you feel very angry at the situation at the time. And, and even now, like, the political situation isn't any better. So I do, I do think, obviously, first and foremost, you have to start with, with Aaron Sorkin. His writing, he's, he is the master. I've watched every single kind of interview with him where he talks about writing. He's just, you, 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 you summed up perfectly there, Ben. The pace, his pace is perfect. It's not too fast. It's not too yeah. slow. This is a courtroom drama, which you know it's two hours and 10 minutes long feels like it what it did for me felt like an hour and a half trouble with courtroom drama is some of them feel like a slog um but this this did not and another wonderful thing about his writing is there's there's, there's loads of characters here to give them each the time the dedication to understand that individual character without going off on a tangent of here's this character now here's this character now here's this character he just seemingly intertwines them into one so we get to know each and every character individually some of the performances were insane and i can see now if it if it can oscar buzz in terms of supporting actor who is a supporting actor who is a leading actor 
and that's going to be kind of a fine line to look at there but i think that that category will be filled with 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 actors from from this film mark rylance i thought was absolutely phenomenal um sasha baron cohen was a standout and obviously eddie redmayne did you stand up it was a reflex. He was respecting the institution. I don't know what good it does to insult the judge. And it was in view of the jury and the press. And Fernando Schultz will be recommending sentencing for convicted. It's a revolution, Tom. We may have to hurt somebody's feelings. Um, but his his dialogue and his, you can tell, Aaron Sorkin's scripts are always so tight. Yeah. I would love to see how he writes his script. Because normally you would write a script with no camera angles, no nothing you're not telling the director what to do. You're just writing the narrative and writing the story. Mm -hmm. But I would love to see, because he knew he was going to be directing this. So I'd love to get my hands on that. But this, I, I, yeah, I loved it. A little bit of movie trivia as well. The guy, and Paul doesn't even know this because I only watched it the other day and I haven't, haven't had a chance to tell him is the actor who played Rennie Davis. Um, Alex Sharp is his name. Um, he actually sent us the camera that we shot bear on. Oh, wow. Um, mm, yeah. yeah so wow. the when we bought that camera there was only a few um being manufactured and we there was one in new york uh and he lived in new york at the time uh and my brother messaged him saying oh do you mind go and pick this up and sending it to us uh so yeah a little bit of movie trivia uh, he used to go to yoga college nice uh, i i i will very quickly echo what you've all said i i thought this was brilliant i enjoyed every single performance but i couldn't agree more with you david it was I had to look back at the runtime because when it ended, um, I I thought, well, that's surprisingly short, and I was amazed that it, it it ran over two hours and ten minutes. Um, for me, as as a as a bit of a doc fan, I just wish there was more uh, more footage from the riots and things spliced in because they they touched on it very briefly when they were storming the hill in the park, but that's really the only kind of shout back to the real life events that you saw everything else was dramatized and it would have been quite nice if they had kind of uh, just a bit more kind of footage from the from the 60s spliced in there my my only criticism that's only because i, I like that period of history yeah just just a brilliant and like I say for, for a courtroom film that could have been quite dry and a bit bland was just brilliant mm-hmm. um and i just want i want to look into kind of the fate of that judge obviously it said at the end um 75 of the barristers in america or where it was kind of gave them a vote of no confidence so mm. i just wonder what what happened to that guy yeah. after you know they, they say it multiple times in the film the whole world is watching uh, and for that guy to act as he did when the entire world was focused on the justice system is is absolutely incredible but yeah two fantastic picks brain really really loved both of these films this week you're welcome. Blimey. Did you did you pick these, Brain, or did somebody ask you to put these forward? <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> on to our review spin-off question. So inspired by the trial of the Chicago 7, what is your favourite courtroom drama or film with a prominent courtroom scene? When I was doing some research for this question, it's very, very clear there are a lot of very well-known, critically acclaimed films that I really need to see. So... The list of stuff that I haven't seen, uh, The Verdict, 12 Angry Men, Kramer versus Kramer, To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, Philadelphia. I have not seen these films. I must go away and watch these, I'm afraid. All right, where's that leap? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to go with the blindingly obvious. I'm going to take you back to 1992. For the man I love, the legend, Sir Tom Cruise, with, of course, a few good men. Colonel Jessup, did you order the code red? You don't have to answer that question. I'll answer the question. 
You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! You know, where are we? We're 18 years later, and there are still people on this planet telling other people that they can't handle the truth. Is the mark of a great, great film. There's my pick. Not really much else to say about it. Surely it's one of the most iconic courtroom films. And I wanted to go first because it's incredibly obvious and somebody else may well have said it. Sorkin as well. Yeah. Is that right? Aaron Sorkin wrote it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a great choice. I'll, I'll follow up because I've got another one, if this counts. Um, and this is The show Social Network, uh, which is kind yeah. of different from um, courtroom. It's still kind of maybe classed as a courtroom drama. Uh, obviously, the whole backbone of that that film and, and which runs through the entirety of it is this kind of courtroom scene. Hmm. Uh, and again, Aaron Sorkin. So that's definitely up there. Another one which is kind of obscure, hopefully you guys have seen it, is Primal Fear no. with yes. Ed Norton and Richard Gere. Yeah. Uh, an incredible performance by Ed Norton, who is a an altar boy accused of murder. Mm. Uh, and the things, I highly recommend it. It is a fantastic film with lots of twists and turns. And so A Few Good Men obviously has to be on that list. I mean, it, it, can't, it can't not be. To Kill a Mockingbird, I've got JFK on my list as well. Very interested in that whole conspiracy theory thing. And I know Oliver Stone sort of played fast and loose with some of the, uh, some of the facts in that movie, but I think it's really compelling. My Cousin Vinny is on my <laughs> list. <laughs> but Joe uh, Pesci. With Joe Pesci uh, and Marissa Tomei. <laughs> It's a fantastic courtroom drama. It's a great, it's it's a great comedy. It's a great movie. Uh, it, I would, if you haven't seen it or if you've seen it and then forgotten about it, I'd go back and watch it again. It's a great, great film. Sounds very silly. My Cousin Vinny. My Cousin Vinny. It's, it's 1992. It was released the same year as A Few Good Men. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it really, really works. Joe Pesci is this lawyer who goes to, to represent his nephew, I think it is, in mm. this small, small hick town. And it's a, it's a brilliant courtroom drama. It's really well written. Uh, brilliantly performed. Marissa Tomei is fantastic in it as well. Really, really recommend it. It's a good couple of hours well spent, that, that movie. Uh, definitely seek it out. But my choice is from 1957. Uh, it's 12 Angry Men. Mm. It's a brilliant, brilliant story of 12 jurymen in, in a room sort of deliberating on the evidence of a, of a case. And 11 out of the 12 just want to do the conviction so they can go home, really. They don't really pay much attention to the evidence, but one person holds out, and the film is about him trying to persuade them that there's going to be a miscarriage of justice if they don't review the case properly. Seek out 12 Angry Men. You won't be disappointed. So my pick's really recent, and it snuck out last year, and it was a great film, and I I, I kind of wish it got more attention. Um, it's the Just Mercy, oh, nice. the film that is about nice. the wrongful arrest of Walter McMillan, who's wrongly charged, and Brian Stevenson, played by Michael B. Jordan, who defended him. Michael B. Jordan has this fantastic monologue, sort of the opening statement in the court, where he's summarising that the case isn't actually about his client individually being wrongly accused of a crime, but essentially is about whether or not you govern the people by fear and, and, and dread, or do you govern them by what's actually in the law? It's easy to see this case as one man trying to prove his innocence. But when you take a black man and you put him on death row a year before his trial, when you base your conviction on the coerced testimony of a white felon, when any evidence proving his innocence is suppressed and anyone who tries to tell the truth is threatened, this case becomes more than the trial of just a single defendant. It becomes a test of whether we're going to be governed by fear and by anger or by the rule of law. He's just astounding, this film. Jamie Foxx is in it as well. He's good, but 
Michael B. Jordan is the one, as far as I'm concerned, in that film. He, he's just absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's fantastic. Really, really good watch. Fantastic. Nice. Can I do the next question? You Please do. Yay! <laughs> okay, guys. So for the next question, which was inspired by the recent news that Jamie Foxx, who we just spoke about, uh, who's in Just Mercy, he is back, guys, to reprise his role as Electro from 2014's Andrew Garfield starring The Amazing Spider-Man 2 in the new MCU Spider-Man film, Far From Homecoming From Home. Now, I know (laughs) every time we come to the pod and just before we hit the record button, I'm not even kidding, Hammond, Paul, you're always going, do you know what I really wish I could see again? (laughs) Jamie Foxx as Electro in Amazing Spider-Man 2. Always first thought when I wake up. (laughs) Exactly. My first thought, my last thought, the world is crying out for this to happen. No, they're not. They're in no way crying out for it because that film is terrible and he is awful in it. So I wanted to... The irony that that film is called The Amazing Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> if films could review themselves in their title. So I asked the question to the guys, what character would you actually like to see come back uh, to reprise a role, living or dead, uh, go nuts? What did you guys have? First off, pre-COVID, I was drooling at the idea of Cruz returning as Maverick <laughs> in Top Gun and Bill yeah. Murray and co returning to the new Ghostbusters. Um, but all of that, feels like a fever dream now um so i had to dig a little deeper goodfellas is one of my favorite all-time films we've spoken about joe pesci um equal parts funny charming psychotic ruthless but we see reprisals of joe pesci in every scorsese pesci get together so really we don't need that um so then i started to think about actors who play characters that aren't always necessarily electric but are given such presence by the way they're played and with that in mind i couldn't look past daniel day lewis And I would love, love to see him reprise the role of Daniel Plainview from 2007's There Will Be Blood. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up! An astonishing film that produced just an incredible character. And I'm sure Daniel Plainview can find a home in another production somewhere. David has just fallen in love with you, Hammond. (laughs) (laughs) One of my favourite films. Oh, and my favourite actor. It is incredible. I could see it right now. Plainview, The Prison Years. We essentially <laughs> see him after he's bludgeoned uh, the priest to death and he's basically ruling the nest yeah. in the uh, in the prison canteen. He would run that prison. He would. Sat on a throne. <laughs> Phenomenal film. What Daniel Day-Lewis did with that character, it, I would love to see it reprised. This is, I don't know if I'll get shot down for this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, so I obviously grew up in the 90s, which was in terms of James Bond. Uh, Everyone has their own James Bond. Who was their James Bond when they were growing up? Uh, And mine was Pierce Brosnan. (laughs) And I... You're in a safe space, David. You're in a safe space. The Bron... The Bron... The Bron... The Bron... Good. I'm alone. Aren't we all? You're late, 007. I have to stop in the bathroom. Ready to save the world again? After you, 006. And I would absolutely love for him, not necessarily to come back, obviously we're in an alternate reality for him to do one more James Bond where, you know, he gets trimmed down, let's, let's you know, dye his hair and let's give him one more chance at this and a serious Bond film, much like Daniel Craig's done. I mm. thought Goldeneye is, is one of my favourite ever James Great Bond film. films. It's amazing. It really holds um, up that film. Yeah, and then obviously Tomorrow Never Dies is good, but then it starts getting a bit silly mm. uh, with, with Brosnan in mind, but yeah, the, the golden eye era just of Brosnan's Bond would be would be phenomenal. Unsurprisingly, I couldn't have just one. 
I've got two. Uh, but that still counts to the list. Yeah, still counts. <laughs> yeah, of course it does. Yeah, yeah. I've got a, I've got a reputation to uphold. So, <laughs> so my first choice is Richard E. Grant reprising his role of Widnail. Oh, um, nice! Love to see that character. Thirty years more wine and life in him. Do you think he'd still be if, alive if after thirty years? <laughs> the caveat was if he'd survived. Um, I, I mean, we've I, seen that. It's essentially Paul Whitehouse's character in the Fast Show, sitting <laughs> in the chair. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. It's very true. I, I mean, I adore that film. You can rewatch it and rewatch it. It doesn't lose anything for me. It just still makes me laugh out loud. And his performance in that movie is astonishingly good. And my second choice would be John Cusack playing Martin Blank from Gross Point Blank to see what's happened with him and Minnie Driver. Yes. All those years later, just to see another story with those characters because they were so beautifully played. I adore that film. And I would love to revisit that universe with those two characters again. So I've got one answer for this um, because there's someone that I really, really want to see come back to this. And technically speaking, it might still happen because there are rumours circulating that Gelmel de Toro might come back to do another Hellboy film. But Ron Perlman as Hellboy, for me, is the absolute one. Yeah, yeah for sure. I yeah. love his performance in those two films. I think they're very underrated uh, action comic book blockbusters. What's great about Perlman is underneath all of that makeup and, and prosthetics, he just gives such a great rooted performance he is hellboy there's a great moment in hellboy 2 where him and abe sapien are having beers together talking about love and he's trying to sort of have a father-son moment with him and they're listening to barry manilow's can't smile without you and it's absolutely hilarious but also just so heartwarming you're in love have a beer look my body's a temple well now it's an amusement park no 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 the glandular balance just shut up and drink it would you those two characters come together are these sort of monsters in this world of, of human beings and so yeah i would love to see ron perlman come back for hellboy 3 not even bothered with the david harbour one uh, from 2019 because i heard it's absolutely awful yeah, don't don't waste your time yeah mm-hmm. i really love that franchise and it would be great to to round off with the third one and get a trilogy of hellboy films yeah for sure nice. sure let's all go to the lobby lobby great so yeah all that's really left then is for me to tell us what we're watching for the next podcast so my choices are driven purely from the basis that i've wanted to watch these films for a little while now uh, and i haven't and this pod gives me a great excuse to do so. So selfish. I know, I know. Sue me. On Netflix, we've got 2016's Captain Fantastic, starring Viggo Mortensen and George Mackay. And on Prime, we've got 2017's Jungle, starring Daniel Radcliffe. Both of these films have piqued my interest, and I want to see what they're all about. Great, so there we go. So there are my two picks for next week, uh, and I just have to end with a question. So we've spoken about Borat and Sasha Cohen in various guises in this podcast. Which Oscar-nominated director was at the helm of the first Borat movie but quit the project officially due to creative differences, but it was actually due to a number of credible credible death threats he or she received? Absolutely stumped. No. Amazing! Huzzah! I've done done it again. Uh, So there we go. There's your question for the pod. All that's left for me to say is, David, thank you so, so much for joining us and giving us your time. It's been so good to hear from you this week. Thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. You are welcome. Paul, Ben, once again, the pleasure has been all yours. (laughs) Cheers, uh, David. Thanks so much, buddy, for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. Please be good. And if you can't be good, be careful. Take care of yourselves and each other. And we'll speak to you very soon. Cheers. Uh, Bye, everyone. Be careful, be safe. And remember... Mermaids are people too, all right?
get it trending all right they are people too great and we will see you all on the next episode You've been listening to Have You Seen This with Paul Breen, Ben Hammond and Ben Mercer. The main theme is written by Akira Ifakubi and remixed by Ben Mercer with beats supplied by Lander. Please like and subscribe and share where possible and check us out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash seenthis, S-C-E-N-E this for all the latest updates. All views and opinions in the podcasts are those of their hosts. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Fuck you, Hammond. (laughs) (laughs) Only in your wet dreams, you old pervert.